0: Thank you very much, especially for the cheering. That's always good on a Monday evening. So for those of you who weren't here last time, I'll do a brief introduction. um, And and I think I should choose my favourite Kate Middleton joke, do you think? And and make it and see. So um, obviously I'm not that one. So I am a psychologist. I'm also a church leader, not that far up the road, at Hitchin in Hertfordshire. And um, I'm also one of the directors of Mind and Soul. We are a national organisation all about encouraging the church to engage with matters of mental and emotional health. And we're really passionate, not just about ill health when things go wrong, but also about how we can just thrive emotionally and thrive in terms of getting the best out of our minds and our brain and reaching our full potential, everything that, that, that could be, everything that's placed within each one of us thinking about how we can do that and that's why this topic is one that's really dear to me really this question of self-confidence and how we deal with where we fall on that line between sort of super ultimate confident and not confident at all would rather hide in a corner and how we manage that Because I think this question of when we approach a challenge, if you've got something that you need to do, whether the little voice in your head says, I can do this, or whether the little voice in your head says, I can't do this, how do we know? And some of you may be here tonight because you're thinking about yourselves. Some of you may be thinking about your kids. I have two kids. I have a daughter who is year seven. She's right at the beginning of secondary school. I have a son who is reception, so he's right at the beginning of primary school. And they're both entering significant phases in their life. My daughter obviously is entering the wonderful world of adolescence, so empathy to anyone else who has teenage children at home. And my son is, is, is in this phase where he's just starting to understand the world. And this question of how do they know what they can and can't do? How do they tackle new tasks? You know, for Nathan, my son in particular, so much of what he faces on a day-to-day basis is new and and a a new experience for him, something he's not faced before. So how does he know what he can and can't do? And that's what's interesting about this topic. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to talk you through some of the background of where your concept of self-confidence and self-esteem and all of this stuff that you'll hear people talk about a lot, where does that come from? And then we'll talk about what are the likely problems that you can encounter if you're going to slip up with this and maybe maybe come out of childhood or adolescence without a good sense of confidence. Or maybe even as an adult, what are the things that can sometimes knock our confidence because it's not necessarily constant through your life. And then what I want to look at at the end, therefore, is some things that we can do to build our confidence and think, how do, we, how do we manage with that if we have had a knock or if we aren't where we want to be? How do we manage it? But some definitions to start with are interesting. So confidence is def- defined as the feeling or belief that one can have faith in or rely on something. And this is a really interesting definition if you think about confidence in terms of your self-confidence So I wonder, imagine if tonight you were faced with an unusual situation. Maybe somebody's left the handbrake off their car and it's rolled into yours. Something hypothetical like that. (laughs) How confident would you be that you can handle it? We've talked about stress and anxiety uh, in previous sessions that I've done here. And a lot of your stress and anxiety will relate to your concept and of how much you can have faith in yourself. If life chucks something difficult, difficult at you, how confident are you that you can rely on you? Are you someone who's always looking for someone else? Who's going to back me up? Is there someone who's going to support me? Or are you confident enough to say, no, I can handle this, I've got it. Very closely related is the concept of self-esteem, therefore, your confidence in your own worth so confidence is just, can you rely on yourself? Do you think you're capable? Your self-esteem is about how confident are you that you are valuable, capable, that you have some good abilities? How much do you respect yourself? So they're very closely related sort of, sort of concepts. And what's interesting is to think about where they come from, therefore, Because children, when they're very little, have no concept of self at all. I don't know who's got little ones like under two-year-olds. Exactly how quickly they start to become aware of this varies from child to child. but Around two, they generally start to get it where they realize who they are. Even earlier than that, I don't know if anybody's got a baby in that stage. It's normally about nine months. This is the first time that they actually realize that they are separate at all from their main caregiver. Usually mum, sometimes dad. Anybody in that phase at the moment? Literally, if you put them down for one second, they scream. It's such a joy. I don't know if anybody's in that phase. So if you ever had any hope of going to the toilet on your own, it's gone for several weeks, possibly a couple of months. And this is because they've realized that they're separate from you. So at first, they don't even realize they're a separate being. Their little brains just can't manage the concept of separation and self at all. They start to get a sense of it. And you'll see this in early childhood, the phase that my son still is. Because this is where their joy of dressing up and and make-believe comes from. So my son is super into Scooby-Doo at the moment. And I I must find that costume for him, although he's a little bit bigger than that. Um, Because he thinks he is Scooby-Doo. Several questions that I ask him are answered in Scooby-Doo type voice. I'm sure goes down really well in school with his teacher in that like, maths class <laughs> but the reason that's so exciting when you're five is because your sense of self isn't formed yet it's not concrete so when my son puts on actually it's a bear costume but he puts on his costume it's brown it'll do and he pretends he's scooby-doo he's not just pretending he's scooby-doo He has become Scooby-Doo for that moment. That's actually who he is. And there are great studies where they they get kids to play, make believe, and and take on different roles and stuff. And then they stop them and they ask them awkward questions like, are you Nathan or are you Scooby-Doo? And the kids are totally floored by these questions because they didn't know you had to be one or the other. Surely you can be both. Or neither, or what? It's just everything is up for grabs when you're a little kid like my son is still. And what this means is it has an interesting impact on their view and their perspective of the world. Because as they do start to gain more of a concept of who they are, and that they, that they are this person with an in, who is an individual self with abilities and good stuff about them, and maybe some stuff that's more challenging, they're very, very strongly influenced by the messages that they get in from other people because children are very reliant on their main significant people in their lives to tell them, therefore, who they are because they don't have the ability to look in on themselves yet. So the, and the difficulty of where their, their sort of worldview concept is is that at this age, the whole concept of what is true is very much up for grabs because they're not able to analyse things like we would as an adult. So if an adult says something to them, they tend to accept that as truth, particularly if it's reinforced time and time and time again. And the reason for this is because of some other things that are going on in their brain, some other abilities that they don't yet have. So Nathan, my five-year-old, is what we call egocentric. So he believes that the whole world revolves around him. Everything that happens in every moment of every day, according to my son, is all about him even if he's in school and there's loads of other kids around, he is not capable of understanding that sometimes there is other stuff going on that's nothing to do with him. Now, I know some of you know adults like that. But in his case, he, he has a good excuse for it because his little brain is not yet capable of understanding. He sort of understands that, 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 that I, do have, I, for example, have a different brain to him and that I have a different experience of the world. He's got the basics of it. We know that because of when he was a little bit younger and he'd done something wrong. And, um, and I said to him, Nathan, um, did, did you break this ornament? And he turned around to me he thought for a bit. And then he said, you does not definitely know it was me because you did not see it. <laughs> and being a psychologist, I got very excited by that because that's what we call theory of mind. This is a big landmark for children. Because he now understands that I have a different worldview from him. What what I've witnessed is not the same as what he's witnessed, and it's the wonderful stage where they start lying and they start twisting the truth and stuff because they realize they can play with this. It's good fun. But still, he hasn't got enough of a concept of that to understand other people's perspectives on him, to understand that sometimes they're biased or that they don't understand, or maybe that they've just had a really rubbish day. And so, what they're saying to him isn't necessarily based on truth. The thing is is that at this early stage, as I've said from little babies, even as they get older, these early moments of recognising that they are separate people can actually be triggers for some negative emotion, it's a scary thing to realise suddenly. And that thing of separation anxiety that, that still goes on for some kids right up into the early stages of primary school comes from this. This realisation that they are separate beings is a challenge. And from the moment that they discover that, and and school's kind of a landmark in this, as I'll mention later, they then have this challenge of building confidence because up to that point, basically their belief is that everything in the world that, that, remember, revolves around them entirely is under the control of their main caregivers, So my son used to believe that there was basically nothing in the world that mummy couldn't solve. But now he's discovering that there are some things that are outside of my control. Wasps, for example. These these things are are phenomenally frightening to my son because he's discovered that there are some things that I can't control. He has to learn confidence in his own abilities to manage stuff. And there's a couple of things, factors that influence this very early development of confidence And the first one is about personality, the person that you are. So some people are naturally much more cautious, much more tentative. Actually in my family, my my daughter is much more tentative. She gets this from my husband. He's a lawyer, he is very risk averse. This is good news if he's your lawyer. He doesn't like taking risks and he's a very good lawyer because he never ever takes any risks on anything. And my daughter, from from the the age when she was very small, she wouldn't risk anything if she wasn't totally sure that it was safe. In fact, true story, her first full sentence was, Daddy, are you sure this is sensible? (coughs) (coughs) Yeah. (coughs) So her personality is that she's much more risk averse, she's much more cautious, she's much more careful she will have a bigger challenge in gaining confidence because of that caution than my son who actually has very little caution or common sense or basic appreciation of risk. (laughs) Some of you have sons like that or daughters like that. So some of our personality affects how easily we gain confidence and we might come back to that later. The other thing, of course, that for children is very significant is what's called attachment theory. So, this is to do with the attachment that you have to your main caregiver. And it's, a, it's a, a, a very significant psychological theory and there's lots of papers written about it and it's quite complex. So I apologize for what I am gonna do, which is just sort of summarize it very briefly. So if any of you are experts in attachment theory, then, um, then you can come and take that up with me later. But basically it's to do with this sense of, do you have a really secure base? that you can start to explore the world from. So the ideal is, as children gain this scary realisation that they're separate beings from the adults who look after them, they are secure enough in the relationship that they have with those adults to start to gradually move away. So the nine-month-old who won't let you even go out of their sight for one second gradually learns that that's okay. And the one and two, the two-year-olds who started at toddler class or nursery or whatever it is. As, they, as you drop them off and they learn that you do come back and it's all all right, and actually the world doesn't fall apart and they manage quite well and they actually have fun. They're learning really valuable lessons about how they can go out from this safe base and return. And attachment theory would talk about what happens if, for whatever reason, that secure base isn't the ideal that it, that it could be. And there's loads of reasons why this could be. So it could be that a parent has had an illness or something. It could be that there's been some disruption to stuff. Sometimes it's just the nature of the personality of the child that they are more anxious or that they struggle more with this. So, so classic secure attachment is the kid who cries a bit when you leave them, but they, they settle quite quickly, and when you come back, they're really pleased to see you. So my son, if I'm not careful, when I walk into his childcare at the end of the day, especially if it's a work day, because he doesn't like it when, I, when he has to go to childcare after school, but if I'm not, when I walk in, I have to adopt the brace position. Like this, because my son is five, he's about this big and he's very light, but believe me, if he runs the full length of a room, he has caught me unawares a couple of times and I've ended up flat on the floor because the speed of the excitement of that small child in seeing me again is pretty high. So that's secure attachment, he's, he's, he would rather I never left him ever, to be honest, my son, he's, he's, you know, little boys, they like their mums, but he's thrilled to see me when I come back. Now the question is, what if that did, what if he didn't settle so well if he continued to be anxious? What if when I turned up again, he was ambivalent or anxious, he wasn't that interested in seeing me? Um, What if he even avoided me? Although just to reassure you, because children do these kind of things just to freak us out as parents. Some of them, they always do that. You come and pick them up and then they refuse to leave with you. Has anybody ever had that happen? And you're like, seriously, this morning you screamed because you didn't want me to drop you off? Are we actually going to scream because now I'm trying to take you home? And that's just kids. So don't worry if that's your child. But there is this theory about looking at how secure is their attachment. (laughs) Can it happen at 15? (laughs) The screaming happens a lot at 15. (laughs) Yeah, well, save save some good questions on that for later. We might be able to talk more about that. What's interesting then is our role as parents is, you see, to view from an increasingly, hopefully, an increasingly distant perspective as our kids gain confidence. So my daughter now at secondary school, she's going off and she's increasingly independent. She's doing more and more on her own. And when she encounters challenges, instead of the instead of coming home and I sort them out, what happens is she comes home and we discuss it. And there is much more of a balance of do you need me to get involved with this or is this something you feel you can manage yourself? Because she's learning about her own ability and she's gaining confidence. So confidence is a journey, right, that starts right when you're a little baby and as you grow up through childhood and adolescence develops. And of course, right from that moment when you do leave home and you start school, you know, the first day when you wave your kids off to school. And may- maybe it's the working mum in me, I don't know, but I found that when I waved, especially my second child off to school, all the, a lot of the other mums were crying. And they brought the dads as well and they were taking photos. It was obviously a moment and I was just going, Yes! Yes, and then running off to get back to all the other things I had to do, but um, that moment, everything changes. Then because then they enter, they get, they're about to have a whole world that's nothing to do with you. And that's a big change for kids as they start to grow and discover because this is going to be their, their life that they are increasingly going to be separate from you. And this is where they start to gain this concept of confidence. So, so let's go through this sort of journey through childhood and adolescence and try and understand a bit about where this early confidence and self-esteem comes from. So children, as they start school at my son's age, are basically incredible sponges. So my son is, is almost daily learning pieces of information about who he is, stuff that's good, stuff that's bad. What do, who is he? What does he like about himself? Is he a bit of a rebel? Is he a good boy? Is he a bad boy? He's, he's trying to figure a lot of this stuff out. And he's getting messages every day from friends, from teachers, from me and his dad, from the other significant adults in his life. And all the way through early childhood, through the primary years, this is basically what's going on. Then, of course, what happens is adolescence kicks in. So in, in through the primary years, you, you as a parent are still probably the main significant source of information for your child. They hear stuff from other people, but you are still basically the main source of information that has the major impact on them. Then, of course, adolescence kicks in and suddenly they pay very little attention to anything that you say or may deliberately disagree with it on principle which is actually quite a healthy thing to do as part of normal adolescence so what's happening then is that as they enter early adolescence their brains have caught up with them and they've started to come out of this egocentric haze of childhood they've suddenly developed the ability to understand that other people have perspectives on them and Yours, as a parent or as the main caregiver to them, is no longer the only or the main one. And suddenly, their peers become incredibly important. So those of you who've got kids in early adolescence, which can be anything from sort of 9 or 10 for the the first ones to go into the stage right up to 12, 13 or so. So that very early stage where the hormones start to kick in. Because suddenly their peers become incredibly important. They're basically asking this question, having come out of this egocentric haze and recognizing that everybody else has a perspective on them. They're saying, well, hang on, am I normal? Does everybody else think that I am normal? What does everybody else think of me? What is going on? And this is the age where the most important thing in the world is to be the same as everybody else. Does anybody have a kid like that? You spend your whole childhood teaching them to be individual and independent and stick up for themselves and have their own opinions. And then suddenly something happens. And overnight, they just want to be the same as everybody else. That's early adolescence. This is the age of embarrassment. And my daughter, I, I have to tell you this story, but you have to be sworn to secrecy. She must never know I told you this story. I will deny it if she ever listens to the recording, which she increasingly does these days. But so she once, it wasn't so long ago, she was going into school, she walks herself into school and she forgot her stuff for cookery class. She left it on the table. And I was actually going into work, my husband phoned me, he was taking our son to school and he said, she's left her cookery stuff. He says, I, I'm, we're on the bike because he cycles in with my son sometimes. My son's on the tag along behind him. He says, what we'll do is we'll go a bit early and we'll, we'll, catch, we'll go up the road and we'll catch her on her way into school and we'll give it to her. And he phoned me 10 minutes later. He said, it's so weird because we cycled all the way up and back again and we were calling her and we were looking. and We couldn't see her, which is weird because she just left home. So I don't know how it happened, but we missed her anyway. He said, it's fine. I'll take her lunch. Here. I'll leave it at reception and it'll be fine. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. When she came home that night, he's then at work. I said, what happened this morning? Because Daddy went after you and he was on the bike with Nathan and they were calling and looking for him. She said, I know. She said, I had to hide in a bush. (laughs) She's like, do you have any idea how embarrassing that was for me? And I'm like, no, I didn't think that through. So that is early adolescence suddenly mortifyingly embarrassed what does everybody else think and what you've got to understand in confidence terms is childhood so my son is is learning the very basic building blocks of he is and I like to think of it as a bit like one of these um, Trivial Pursuit pieces. Who plays Trivial Pursuit? Yeah, you know the little pieces. You've got, you've got the, 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 the game piece, and then you've got the pieces of cheese that go in. If you think of it a bit like this, that, that, that childhood and primary school is about forming the basic overall structure. It's more of a general overview. You roughly know who you are. And then in adolescence, it's about starting to drop in the very specific parts of understanding about your self-concept starting to form this really genuine adult sense of self-esteem and self-image and all of the complexity that goes in with that and what we're looking for therefore as we go through childhood and coming out into adolescence is what we call just good enough so in an awful lot of these things you know, we think that what we want is an ideal, you want brilliant self-esteem, actually what we're looking for is just good enough, we want a child to have a basically realistic concept of who they are, because it's no good if we've told them they're amazing at everything, and actually that's not totally realistic, because believe me, their peers will kick that out of them when they start secondary school, we want them to have a good enough concept though of who they are, and the reason is because then when they get into adolescence, they need to have that foundation that they can build on. And as they become more and more independent and start to go into the challenges of the adult world and hit things like exams and, um, and, and all the various things that they're going to encounter, we want them to have a good enough self-esteem that they can start to reach out from that. So children, the secure base is you, you as, as the parent, as the main caregiver, and they 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 sort of bounce out. It's like they're on elastic. They go out to school, but they're going to bounce back to you at the end of the day. Everything that they see about themselves is bounced off you. You're still quite influential. By the time you get into adolescence, they're, they're free and loose. They're off. They're going into the world. They're starting to encounter this for themselves. And in brain terms, at this stage in adolescence, they really are taking on that adult abstract concept of who they are. They're starting to understand that. And really, there's three main concepts here that that they're coming to grips with. And this is what we all carry around with us as part of our adult self-esteem, our self-confidence. So the first one is who they think they are. Obviously, that's, that's important. Who do you think you are? What's your concept of the person that you are? But there are two others that are very important as well. The first one is who do you think you should be? This is a very interesting one. So... And what's the match between who you think you are versus who you think you should be? What are the different messages you've had about that from the different significant people in your life? And as a lot of adolescents is trying to figure out some clashes there because your parents think you should be hardworking, basically well-behaved, but your friends think you should be a rebel and cool and all that stuff. So there's a bit of working out to do here. And then there's the thing of who do you think other people think you are, if that makes sense. So, do you think that people basically have the right understanding of you, or are you, do you struggle with a feeling that you're misunderstood? Now, most adolescents feel they are misunderstood to some degree. Anybody who has a teen, who's got through the teenage years without their teenage son or daughter saying to them at some point, "You just don't understand me. You need some kind of medal. We need to know how you did that," because most that's a pretty it's it's common for teenagers because they don't know who they are. So the the concept of who do you think they are is actually quite frightening to them. Do you think that they are somebody they think they might not be? They don't even really know who they are. Teenagers are very prone to taking on anything that gives them a strong identity. So whether it's the latest band or the latest craze or whatever it is, if it tells them everything about who they should be, what they should think, what they should feel, how they should answer and how they should react, they like it because it gives them a security that they don't have. This does, of course, mean that this is the age group where they're most vulnerable to media and um, other influences that might, for example, present a false ideal of the person that they should be, whether that's physically, so in terms of, of model images and body image and stuff like that, or whether it is emotionally or academically or anything. So what are the main challenges then as we go into adulthood? What are the challenges that that we've all faced and that if you've got teenage or younger children that they will face? So the first one is this concept of truth. What is the truth? As you are sitting in your teenage years trying to work out who you actually are, you are surrounded by different thoughts and opinions and reflections of who you may or may not be. Because sometimes it's realistic to who you are. Sometimes somebody else has a totally biased perspective. Sometimes they've not understood you at all. And teenagers have to get very good at trying to weigh this stuff up. And the more you have strong influences that aren't that reliable, the more difficult that is. Because, of course, people's perspectives on who you are are not truth. They're not solid truth. Like like if I measured a chair and said it's 30 centimetres, that's solid fact. If somebody says you are a nice person, that's an opinion. I, I quite like that opinion. But if somebody says, you know, that Kate's a bit of an idiot, is that truth? Is it? An op- it's just someone's opinion. They could be right. They could be wrong. It depends on your perspective. And the important thing about this and why it matters is to do with the way that your brain triggers emotions, because from all this truth and all this information, you gain a perspective too on yourself and who you are. And there might be things that you come to believe about yourself. Hopefully, things like, I am basically a capable person. Things that you believe about your confidence in yourself, or they may not be so positive. "I, I mess up almost everything I do. You might have a belief that has become like a truth to you that actually is unfair, that maybe is contextual, it's related to some stuff that's going on that's nothing to do with you, totally out of your control. And the thing is, is that when we think about how our brains trigger emotions, what we have to understand is that their job is to warn us that something significant is happening. So those of you who are here for anxiety, we talked a lot about this. But how does your brain know what is significant? It might be really obvious because you just stepped out into the road and there's a bus coming. Obviously that's significant, but it might be something like something that's linked to a truth that you believe or a goal that you try to live life by. So if you believe as a a goal that I am basically worthless, my value comes from achieving highly in everything I do, so I must be perfect at everything then you're going to experience a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. Because every time you're at risk of not achieving a perfect score, your brain's going to trigger that emotion to warn you. You're about to conflict with a goal, something that you live by. So we have to understand that some of our confidence and some of the things that we come to believe about ourselves can be hugely influential, not just in what we do and don't do, but in the emotions that we experience in our view of the world. Because if you think of emotions as a bit like striking a match... If you are living your life by some truths or some beliefs, some goals that are difficult or unrealistic, then it's like having just too many matches struck all the time. You're going to deal with a lot of difficult emotion. And one of the most interesting examples of that when it comes to confidence is this thing of perfectionism, of how we manage, and that can come from a personality so, so again, my, my husband is a, is a lawyer. He is he's like a professional perfectionist. It is his job. We say he's a professional nitpicker. And my husband is the best person in the world if you want him to spot like an error in something. So if you do want to write a legal contract or something, give it to my husband. He is amazing at spotting any problems. He's not the person to go to if you give him, say, a report to read or your English homework or something. And what you really were looking for is encouragement. Somebody to tell you that it's marvellous and they think you're very clever. Do not give it to my husband because he will return it with lots of red ink and little lines under it and pointing out any pitfalls or things that he noticed. Because that's his skill. He's a perfectionist. The risk is is that if, if that's you, is that you apply that same degree of scrutiny to yourself and therefore it's like you're continually chipping away at your own confidence. If you only allow yourself to feel that you're reliable and good at something if you consistently come top in it or achieve 100% in it you're going to have quite a dim view of your own potential, your own reliability. You might focus too much on the negatives. That might be a personality characteristic, but it could also be a learned thing. Imagine that you grew up with parents or it could even be teachers in a context where somebody, for whatever reason, put you under pressure to be that perfect. Who knows what it was? Maybe it was something out of everybody's control, just a situation as you were growing up that you had to be the good kid who never caused any trouble. But again, you can go into your adult life with this concept, believing truths about yourself that require something that's unrealistic and it can have an impact therefore on your confidence. So that's the first thing, the first challenge that we can hit in terms of confidence is how true is the stuff we learned about ourselves? If we're lucky, the messages we get throughout childhood are basically reliable and basically true, basically accurate. But some of us have ended up going into adolescence or even adult life with some stuff floating around in terms of what we believe about ourselves that isn't that reliable. The second thing that can cause us a challenge in our confidence, particularly as adults, is traumatic stuff, the unexpected, the dramatic. So even if you go into adulthood with a pretty good confidence, there are some things that life can throw at us that just knock you for six, that take any illusion you may have ever been under that life is predictable and under your control, or basically fair those sorts of things these are all illusions that we we like to believe about life but sometimes stuff happens that forces us to recognize that isn't the case and these things are a massive challenge to your confidence so maybe you've been involved in a really bad accident and it just totally throws your confidence even though it wasn't your fault maybe it was your fault maybe you really messed up you crashed the car you did something stupid you were the one who did that idiotic thing at work and so you lost your job Being forced to face the reality of your fallibility as a human is a huge challenge to your confidence. Of course, the reality is we all make mistakes. We all mess up. There have been some famous ones, haven't there, in the news where you hear of people who've left notes on the train or whatever the latest thing is. And there's always a little bit of me, even when they have been really stupid, where you just think, oh, I feel so for them. Because we could all do that sort of thing, couldn't we? We've all come within a whisker of being total idiots over something. And if that is you, if it happens, even though that's just a human thing, the impact on your confidence can be huge. You might have to face massive emotions as you try and face up to doing those things again. You might find it has an impact on your belief about your, your reliability in other contexts. So you messed up because you crashed the car and suddenly tot- your confidence is totally thrown at work in a context that's totally unrelated, but not to your brain because this is about whether you trust yourself. So these things can be big challenges that we have to work through, that we have to to get through as an adult sometimes. The third common challenge that I want to mention to confidence is being the odd one out. And this is particularly a problem in that early adolescence stage when being the same as everybody is so important. But it's a challenge even as an adult, if we're honest, isn't it? If you're the odd one out, if you're the one who doesn't quite fit, And this could come from many different contexts. So I've worked with with kids who were just different in their family. So I come from a family of scientists, for example, and um, although I'm a psychologist, so it is science really. It's not like science in terms of physics and maths and chemistry and stuff that that my, my family were all into. And that was tough growing up. They would have all these discussions. that We used to have the most bizarre family discussions about maths or physics because they're all really interested in that stuff and I if I tried to join in they would just tell me to to keep quiet because I didn't know what I was talking about because I was also the youngest I didn't fit in and that was a challenge to my confidence as a kid I didn't feel great for being different I felt like maybe there was something that wasn't right and it challenged my confidence there's many ways that you can not fit in and, and some of them might be positive those of us who are people of faith who come to church you know if your kid is the only one in their group who who believes in God who goes to church who has that aspect of their life that's hugely challenging Being the odd one out. I once, in an unthinking moment, we were trying to, we were publicizing some fun day or something at church. And so I said to my daughter, Oh, have you invited all your mates from school? And she was like, Uh, no. She said, I think if I wanted to commit social suicide, I might wait till the end of my first year at senior school. Well, that told me. Because, but she's right, what was I thinking for her to be that different? At uh, the age she is and the context she is, we'd also just moved then, we'd, we'd only just moved back from France, so she was already different. She's like, no, I'm not doing that. We have to understand that, and we have to be a bit sympathetic to our kids when we really do want them to, to have the confidence to stand up and be different, not to follow the crowd. When they come home, they've got into trouble because somebody did something and they just went along with it, and every bit of us wants to say, come on. Have the guts, have the courage to be different. It's very hard when you're 11. We have to understand that. Sometimes there's stuff that makes you different that nobody can do anything about. Maybe you've got an additional need or a disability or your family looks different, whatever it is. Maybe you're the kid who's just moved to the area and you're new to the class. Kids at this age are incredibly sensitive about looking for differences. And it's a challenge to your confidence if that's you. Something else that you might need to overcome. The fourth thing that I want to talk about is perhaps as, as an adult more, when, when you encounter situations having previously thought you were fully confident and then it turns out unexpectedly that maybe you're not. And this is what I call echo emotions. And this is what can happen when as an adult we encounter something in our adult life that for, some, for whatever reason triggers an emotion that's linked to something else from way back. And you know, as adults, all this stuff that I'm talking about, the the truths that we live by, the rules that we live by, the beliefs we have about ourselves, we're not like consciously aware of most of these. Unless you hit some kind of problem or life challenge, most of us have never sat down and thought, oh, what do I think about myself? What are the beliefs I have about myself? And sometimes you encounter something as an adult, and what happens is that in that moment, your response to that event is so disproportionate to what's happening. So you are irrationally annoyed by something or upset by something or terrified or panicked by something, and you cannot understand why. And when this relates to confidence, sometimes it's because it's triggering an echo of something from long ago, which probably has has created a belief system that you have lived by unwittingly for years decades sometimes I've worked with adults who've become aware of something that they have lived by for most of their adult life and then have come to a point of actually thinking hang on do I do I actually believe that about myself is, is that what's going on here so echo emotions are challenging to us if we suddenly encounter something unexpected but don't despair it's easier to sort that stuff out when you're a teenager because your whole concept of who you are and your whole confidence is still up for grabs because it's still forming but you can delve into this stuff as an adult you can understand it better and if there's one message that i want to come back to again and again and again tonight it is that confidence is is a lifelong journey you're not stuck with whatever the hand is that life deals out to you if you are sitting here thinking yeah i came through childhood and adolescence with a rubbish hand no wonder i'm not very confident And you're thinking, well, that's it for me then. I'm in trouble. Well, that's not the case. We can always build on our confidence. We can develop confidence. Even as adults, we can push into this stuff. We can understand better what it is that's influencing us, and we can overcome it. The fifth thing, therefore, that can cause us a problem in our confidence is what I've called graffiti. Now, what I mean by graffiti is I'm taking this. Those of you, again, people of faith who've read some Adrian Plash, you might recognize this because this is originally what he calls it. But this is where somebody else has written rubbish about you all over your self-concept. So somebody in, typically in childhood, in adolescence, but even as adults this can happen, somebody has bullied you and they have systematically taken apart your confidence. Maybe they knew they were doing it. Maybe they didn't even realize it, but that's what they've done. And this is bullying, of course. And it can happen from a little kid, it can happen right through to adults in the workplace, in friendships, whatever that is. And if somebody, if you have been battered by messages about who you are that challenge even the most solid sense of self belief and confidence, it knocks you. It really does have an impact, but it doesn't have to be long-term. Again, if that's you, if you're sitting here thinking, yes, actually, I was bullied when I was a kid, and I've never got over it. It destroyed my confidence, and even now, I can't—I just don't have any faith in myself. Don't despair, because you can work through that stuff. You can build, even if you've got just a small foundation to build on, you can build your confidence. You don't have to accept what life has dealt you, the hand that you were given. So if somebody has written graffiti over your self-confidence, get some help, get some support to understand better the impact that that's had. What is the stuff that you've started to believe about yourself? And we'll talk in a minute about, about how you can do that and how you can start to think about what are the messages that you want to listen to about who you are? Because some of us have had rubbish written about us from people who don't know us and who have no right to make those kind of comments or statements about us. So if that's you... Don't believe that that's going to have to affect you for your whole life because it doesn't need to. So, in in the sort of last 15 minutes or so of what I'm going to say to you, I want to talk about five things, therefore, that you can do to boost your confidence. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, actually, I think my confidence is all right, but maybe it could be better, there's some stuff I'd like to do more of. Maybe some opportunities I've been given and I'm not, oh, I'm not really feeling that confident about them. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, actually, my confidence is really rubbish and it's held me back my whole life. Maybe you're one of those people who thought, well, it was all fine until this happened. And now I don't even know who I am anymore. Don't despair. Here's five things, therefore, that you can do to boost your confidence. And number one is about foundations. Check your foundations. So what I mean by this is what, Is your self-confidence built on? What are the basic foundations of who you believe you are, the stuff you believe about yourself? So I don't mean like I am good at maths. I mean more basic than that. And foundations are so vitally important. We know it when we're building stuff. And, and most of you, definitely people who, who are from a church background, but most people will have heard that there was a, there's a story in the New Testament, actually Jesus tells, that talks about two guys who build a house. And one of them builds it on sand, and one of them builds it on rock. Now, I am not a builder. We have actually just fairly recently uh, built ourselves a house. When we came back from France, we knocked down most of a house and then rebuilt it. So I kind of get a little bit. And I think it goes like this, that if you were building a house on sand... You could throw the thing up pretty quick because I reckon I could dig those trenches pretty quick and do what I needed to do, get the walls up. I could put a house up pretty quick. Meanwhile, my friend over here who's building on the rock is spending months and all he has to show for it is some holes in the ground. Actually, that's what building is like. You come back and you've spent like half of your money and very proudly they take you for a site visit and you are like, this is basically just a lot of holes in the ground. But so that's what I think is happening. And his, the house on the rock is going to take a lot longer to put up. But the thing is, is that if there's one basic truth about life, that we cannot escape. And maybe we try to believe that this isn't true, but it is. And we, as the older you get, you will come face to face with this truth at one point. And it's in this story. So there's a verse in, in, the, the, in Matthew's Gospel, which is in the New Testament, where it says this. And about both stories, whichever house it was, it says... The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And this is a basic truth about life, isn't it? That whoever you are, however well you play life, however right you get everything, storms will always come. There will be stuff in your life that knocks you. Times when it feels like the water is coming over your head when you think you might go under. There will be stuff you never thought would be part of your life story that you will encounter bereavement, losing a job, um, losing, I don't know, whatever it is, stuff that will just come out of nowhere for you. Maybe it's long-term illness, something like that, that you never thought you'd have to face. And in those moments when that happens, what becomes so critical is the foundation that you've built upon. Have you built upon stuff that is flimsy? So if you've built, let's say you were the type of kid who always came top in everything. Is anybody that type of kid? You don't really want to admit it now, do you? My brother was that type of kid. He was really annoying. He literally never failed at anything for like his whole life. He was the kid who came top in every class. He won the gold medal in school for being the smartest kid. He was very annoying as a big brother. And the thing is, if you're that type of kid, it is so tempting in adolescence to to take on board as part of your self-confidence and your self-concept to build on the basis that I am valuable because I'm good at stuff. Because it's so obvious you're always getting this feedback from people saying, gosh, you're very clever, aren't you good? You get top marks in everything. And this is fine until the day that you face the possibility of failing. Because if you built your self-confidence on a foundation that said, it's because I'm clever, it's because I come top in everything, when you eventually fail, and they will eventually. Actually, my brother still never has. He's very annoying, but we'll let him off. But when you hit that, the risk is is that when the winds blow and the storms rage, you just suddenly feel like your whole house could fall down. Who even are you now? If this goes, if you lose that job, if you mess something up, What does that do to your self-concept? So build on solid foundation. What are the foundations? Whatever perspective you get on this, whether it's psychology, medicine, or or faith and and religion and stuff like that, they will tell you the same basic things that you have to build on. These are the things that are really important. Do you believe that you are loved, that you are lovable? Do you have a sense of security that you are lovable in spite of the rubbish bits of you? Because we all have them. Are there people in your life who love you unconditionally just because of the person that you are? Are you blessed enough to have those kind of relationships, friendships, whether it's a parent or a spouse or your kids, whatever it is, that sense of being loved is is a vital thing for humans. Do you believe that you are unique, that you are special? Not because of something amazing you do, like the scores you get on tests or because you always come top in everything, but just for who you are. Every single person in this room is totally unique and different. If I took any one of you and replaced you tomorrow with an incredibly clever robot that mimicked exactly who you were, would your family accept that? Would your friends accept it? No, because it wouldn't be you. You are unique. You are special. They love you. So do you have that sense of uniqueness? Are there people who build into you how valuable you are, how special you are? And that sense of value, where do you get that value from? Do you feel like you have that intrinsic value? Not because you earn it somehow, because you look after people or you care for them or you do their jobs for them or you score high results for them or you earn lots of money. Our culture tells us so many lies about where our value comes from. It comes from having the right gadgets or being very rich or having a really good job or how busy we are. That's one thing. You know, if you say to people, How are you? the answer is normally tired or busy. It's like, What if you were neither tired or busy? Who would you be then? Is that okay? So are you valuable? What's your purpose? What's your sense of identity? Build your life on really solid foundations. This is what I try and give my kids. If I can give them one thing, do not build your life and your sense of value on flimsy stuff. Build it on the stuff that really matters. Because whatever life throws at you, that's the stuff you can rely on. So that's number one. The second thing is to take up the challenge. You know, Every, did you ever play that game when you were a kid where you were going up the stairs? And as you were going up the stairs, mum or dad or somebody would come up behind and and like chase you up the stairs. Did you ever play that game? Some parents have played that game, right? I mean, it's instinctive. Dads just do it, I think. And that is a little bit scary as the kid, isn't it? Even though you know it's your dad or your mum or whoever, because it's kind of fun and exciting and scary. Everything is scary if you are running away from it. And that's an interesting fact when it comes to confidence, and if your confidence is low, it, is, it triggers a lot of anxiety. It's very challenging. And you can end up sort of backed into a corner, literally hiding in your own house, scared to go out and face any challenge because your belief in your own reliability is so low that, that even the most basic things can be a real challenge to you in terms of those emotions. The thing is, is that a lot of us will think, whether it's that or whether it's something much bigger, you've been asked to take a promotion at work that will involve doing presentations or, or something like that and you're thinking, oh, I, I hate speaking in front of people, I freak out, I'm not confident at it. So whichever of those of you or wherever you fall, the question is, where is it that you need to grow? What's the next step? Because the temptation is to think, well, what I'm gonna do is hopefully at some point, magically, I will grow some more confidence and then I will do the thing that I'm scared of. So when I feel more confident, I will then start public speaking. When I feel more confident, I will then go out and, um, and apply for some better jobs. When I feel more confident, I will go and join that social group so I can get to know some, some people and make some new friends, whatever it is. But did you know that actually it is through doing a lot of those things that you will gain confidence? So don't wait, or you might wait your whole life. Take up the challenge. What's the the smallest step of something that you could do that's a little bit scary, but actually will help you to build your confidence? Because it is through challenging ourselves and through learning that we gain confidence. That's why good enough confidence is so important for teenagers. Because if they're confident enough, they will then try out new stuff and they will then discover that they can do some of it, not all of it, and they will then grow in their confidence so they'll try more stuff. And that's the key, even as adults, is thinking, what's the smallest step I could do in this thing that I'm scared of to start to build my confidence, stand up to it, and then you'll start to see your confidence grow. So the third thing that you can do to build confidence is to experiment, to think, what is the stuff that you need to challenge? And I would say to some of you in the room, particularly the perfectionists, you know who you are. If you don't, your friends and family will definitely know who you are, so ask them afterwards. I would say to some of you, do you need to practice doing something you're really rubbish at? Because some people never do anything unless they know they're going to be really good at it. And that's, that's all very well and good, but what it means is that you can become so afraid of failing that you never try anything. So some of you need to practice failing. Failing. So take up some pastime. I find ice skating very useful for this because very few people are really good at it. Bowling is also quite good for this because it's one of those things that no matter how hard you try, some, some people, it just you, you can't quite get the ball out of the gutters. But find something that you're not very good at and go and do it. And enjoy failing. Recognise, teach your brain that it's okay for you to do some stuff that you're not good at. Experiment a little. Because then when you have to try doing the thing that you're actually quite scared of because of your confidence, you will remember that actually even if this doesn't go so well, that's okay, you can try it again, you can learn, you can grow. Imagine for the little kid, if they never tried anything unless they were confident they could do it really well, they'd never learn anything. But if your confidence was not somewhere along the journey, that might be where you are as an adult. So experiment, try some stuff out. Point four is about, are you listening and who or what are you listening to? So let me tell you something. There are some of us in this room tonight who have people in our lives whose opinion we would not count on anything. So we don't agree with their politics. We don't agree with their perspective on what's good TV. We don't like the same movies they like. We think they're quite annoying. And yet... When they start to say stuff about us, we take every single word on board. Now, I don't know who that is in your life. Maybe someone is still spraying some graffiti over you even now. But think about who you're listening to. If you don't value their opinion on anything else, then don't value their opinion on you. That's the key. And more to the point, are there opinions on you that you are just not listening to because they conflict with what you believe about yourself? So you think that you're rubbish, that nobody, that the only reason people like you is because you do stuff for them, but your friends are telling you that they think you're amazing, they think you're really funny, they think you're good company, they think you're loyal, they think you're interesting, but you're not listening to them. and Instead, you're continuing to believe something about yourself that conflicts with all the evidence of the people whose, whose opinions you value the most. If there is a disconnect in your life, if some things don't add up, some of the stuff you believe about yourself doesn't doesn't match with the stuff that significant people say about you you need to question who you're listening to and think what do i actually believe if you're believing stuff from the past that some people said about you a long time ago maybe this is time to reassess that because sometimes the stuff that was spoken over us when we were kids is no longer relevant now you've changed the situation has changed it wasn't even about you in the first place you're living your life by it 30, 40 years later. Who are you listening to? Do you need to reassess the things that you believe about yourself? You know, I talk to my kids all the time about this. They say it's really annoying. So I'm going to annoy you now with it too. If someone throws you a ball, you don't have to catch it. What do I mean by that? I mean, if somebody says something about you, if someone shares their opinion with you, anybody else who works in the church, you'll get really good at this because people share a lot of opinions with you a lot of the time. You don't have to catch them. If someone throws a ball, you can just let it bounce off and roll across the floor. Because I'm not going to hold that. I think that what you just said to me comes from your own issues, your own perspective, your own frustration, your own stuff. I don't think that it's a relevant opinion about me. I don't think it's going to be influential to me. I I just don't think it's that valuable in terms of what I think about myself. I'm not going to catch it. I might kick it around a bit with a good mate and say, what do you think of this someone said to me today? And they'll just say, ignore that. That's nuts. So don't catch every ball that's thrown to you in terms of opinions about yourself. And the fifth thing, therefore, is about how you talk yourself up. Because a lot of what we've talked about tonight is about the difference between sort of head knowledge about ourselves versus heart knowledge about ourselves. You know the difference between sort of hearing people say stuff about us and actually really believing it, taking it on board, experiencing it for ourselves. And did you know the journey from your head to your heart often starts with your mouth? So the words that you speak really matter. Maybe some of you are in jobs where you do, you have great authority because of your role. The words you speak are authoritative. Maybe some, you know, there's some people who they just say stuff and you're not really sure why you just do what they say. Some of us are gifted like that. You, you, you speak with an authority, even if you don't particularly mean to. Even if you don't, the words that you speak do have an impact. And Perhaps the most significant impact is the words that you speak over yourself all the time. So some of you you're struggling with confidence and it's because you're saying stuff to yourself all the time that is attacking you. It's like having a, a bad tempered parrot on your shoulder all the time who's saying, You're rubbish, well I don't think you did that well, and you'll probably mess the next thing up. And they were probably laughing about you, laughing at you. And, and, well, they will have noticed the one thing you did wrong, so don't think that any of the things you did right will count. If you are speaking that sort of stuff over yourself, you will continue to struggle with your confidence. So don't talk yourself down. Go and talk to some of those friends who have good opinions on you and hear some of the stuff that they value about you. Choose maybe one, two things and start to speak it over yourself. What difference would it make to your life? If from this point tonight, you chose one thing about yourself that's positive and you spoke it over yourself every single morning. So you started off every day saying, I am basically a nice person. I am basically capable. I have some skills and values about me. I know that's more than one thing, but heck, choose five. It's a good thing to do. Start each day, write them on your mirror, stick them on post-its, whatever you need to do, laminate them and keep them in your back pocket. Because in the rough moments when your confidence is challenged or you're trying to do something that is difficult for you, they're the moments that you need to think, I am basically a capable person. That's one of mine. I started saying that to myself when I was a teenager and I was a, I was a med student and I was put in situations where I was way out of my depth. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to do exams that were really hard. I had to go and talk to patients. I was like 18 and it was crazy. And I would say to myself, I am basically a capable person. I can do this. And it helped me, I remember walking into exams saying to myself, I'm basically a capable person, I can do this. And I still say it to myself now sometimes, if I have something to do that's challenging. So speak good stuff over yourself and see how it changes everything. So those are my five points. And what I want to encourage you, and I hope you've seen from this, is that your confidence is not something that was set a long time ago in the past, and you now can't change. It is up for grabs your whole life and it is something that we all grow in, we all journey in. It's not an accident, you know, that you, uh, on the whole, you're more confident in, for example, your retirement years than you were in your teenage years. It's just because you've been around a lot longer and you've learned some stuff about life and yourself and you've grown. But you can do that at any point intentionally, you can stop, you can think about some of this stuff. So be encouraged to grow in who you are. Play a little bit with what you can do with what you can't do. Take some risks. Learn how to fail. And speak good stuff over yourself and see what difference it makes to your future, to the next version of who you are. My husband used to joke with me that I was like a a Windows computer, you know. It was like version 2000, then version 2001, then version 2002. Because when we first got married, I grew so much in confidence. So what difference might it make to you? I'm gonna finish there. We were gonna have some time for questions and stuff,
1: so. Um,
2: Well, I'm 64 and I'm still growing into myself. (laughs) Um, That was so challenging and so helpful. Thank you so much. Um, Have we got some good questions? I have a microphone. You you were asking a question earlier. Thank you.
1: Hello. Um, Hi. My name is Robney. Um, I'm I'm struggling at the moment as I I have um, a 13 and a 15 year old, and it's very interesting what you were saying about adolescence. Mm. And it is could, an
0: interesting time.
1: Yeah, and that's really what I would like you I would like I've heard if I could get a penny for every time it's been told to me that you know it's hormonal and you know that it's just you have to just accept that they are going to be distant from you and they're going to be cold or appear to be cold then I'll be a multimillionaire. today. Um,
0: but nevertheless I still struggle with with accepting it that kind of make sense? Yeah, so from, from a, yeah from, I know what you mean. So from a scientific point of view, from
1: a medical point of view, yeah. can you put that to rest? Yeah, or? so
0: I mean an evening on teenagers and what is going on for them is we could do a whole other hour yeah. on that. And it, and it is very interesting to go into it with a concept of what is changing for them, what is going on in their brains. And a lot of it you can understand better with that. But that doesn't mean you just accept it and and take a very passive role in it. So our job as parents is to help them get over those challenges. So yes, most teenagers at some point will think, I don't know who I am. That's normal. But our job as parents is to help them understand that, to reflect stuff, even to talk to them. So I took my daughter out for coffee on Saturday morning, and we had a really good chat about exactly this stuff, about what do you build your sense of who you are on? And I said to her, what do you think is the good stuff about you? What do your friends like about you? And she brought some of this stuff out. And I was like, that is the stuff you should build your life on. Not how good you are in school or all this stuff or how good you are at long jump or whatever it is. And I said, that's tricky. But keep thinking about it. And I will keep reminding her about that. I will drive her crazy with it. Because I want her to get this sense of of where her value comes from. So I think there is some stuff around teenagers that can be useful to understand. But we remember that our job is to help them get through that stuff. but you can still take them for coffee. uh, Okay, well, that's more difficult. Well, we have to do what we can do from our context, don't we? Maybe sometimes it's about supporting the other people who are doing good stuff. You know, the other interesting thing about teenagers, if you have them, which kind of sucks if you're a parent, is that you are sometimes not the person who's most influential in their lives. And actually, your job is to find other people who can support them, who can speak into their lives. That's why youth workers are so valuable, So if you have a friendly local youth worker, be nice to them. If you have teenagers, buy them coffee. I think they usually like chocolate cake because they may become the person who is most influential in your kid's life. Part of their job for our teenagers is to separate from us as parents and to do this stuff more by themselves. So sometimes finding other people who can speak into their lives is is a good thing to do.
2: Great.
0: Have we got another question? Hi, Kate. Um, my name is Danielle. I've got a quick question. How do I make my mom understand me more? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. And and I, I think I'm going to answer it in a potentially slightly challenging way, which is some of us, so our some of our challenges in self-confidence have come from parents who didn't understand stuff and maybe weren't the most helpful. And some of us go into adult life and still what we want more than anything is for that parent to understand us better. And sometimes what we have to do as adults is let it go because your self-confidence is no longer determined by your mother's opinion about you. She might just be wrong. She might have always been wrong. I don't know her. I don't know you. But maybe she's got it wrong. Maybe in the fullness of time she might come to understand that you are a different person to who she thought Maybe she won't, but you don't have to be held back by that. I bet there are plenty of other people who can speak into your life, people who love you, who have opinions about you, who know you maybe a lot better than she did. So I would say sometimes as an adult, we need to let our parents be human and accept that maybe they've got some stuff wrong and look for the other influences that matter. There
2: was some more uh, hands up over here.
0: Um, thank you Sarah um, I appreciate your talk and it's very topical I think particularly with the work that Cheryl Sandberg is doing on building resilience yeah. and just um, wondered if you had any comments about that on um, I think her faith and she's from a very strong Jewish background as well I think the um, the
1: the things that she's saying are really worthwhile particularly if you're female
0: Yes, and she particularly has an influence to women, doesn't she, and growing, And there's, there's some interesting stuff written around, do girls and women struggle more with confidence than guys? And that's, it's, it's interesting. You, you can listen to some of that stuff in the context of a wider understanding about confidence. And there may be some particular challenges that girls um, certainly perceive now. I think that one of the interesting things about um, teenage girls, if we look at some of the challenges around gender identity, which are so much more common now than they used to be, and we still see again and again that many more girls than boys struggle with their concept of their gender, and I think that's because for a lot of girls, they associate their gender with things that are negative, that challenge their confidence with people's perspectives on them that might not be helpful. So where we've got strong women leaders who are speaking into that, yes, it's, it's really valuable and very interesting. The stuff around resilience also is interesting. This is what I'm talking about, about when the, the rains come, when the rough stuff comes. And part of confidence, building confidence as a teenager or as an adult, whatever stage you're at, is about trying stuff out. We, we only gain confidence by trying and taking some risks. And if we never let them take those risks because we helicopter parent them so much or we protect them from any failure, then we never give them the gift of learning that stuff about themselves, what what they can do, what their limits are, how they can grow and stuff like that. And that's resilience. And I think that we do, as a society, we need to think a little bit about what we're doing to kids whereby, you know, the the, the ages sort of eleven, twelve, they're faced with exams and they are paralysed with fear and anxiety by that. I, I think it's a very worrying thing for a generation of young people who don't have that resilience, and it's an interesting thing to debate where it comes from. Thank you. Hi, um, this is um, a gender observation as well as a question. So um, I, I noticed that um, so in the work front where you're applying for a job i noticed and i heard that um a woman would not apply for a job she's qualified
1: for while a man will apply for a job he's not qualified for because he has the confidence he can do it so when yeah. i look at a <laughs> when i look at a job description i look at 100 percent because i think
0: i kind of fall on the perfectionist end and i think oh i can't do 10 percent of this so out of integrity, I won't apply for it because there's 10% I can do. Meanwhile, a, a friend or a, a man will say, um,
1: actually,
2: <laughs> That's <me>.
1: my husband <laughs> will, <laughs> will be able to do 10% of it. I probably Maybe can't do 90%. And you say, I'll apply for. for this job. I can do it. And I'm thinking, but so the question is, is it integrity or is it confidence? Because I feel it's integrity. Oh, good but he just has the confidence. Oh, 10%. Oh, I can do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and maybe there's an interesting tension between those two things. Because the thing in, is, your integrity isn't just in the person you are now, it's your belief in the person you have the potential to be. So I would say that any job that says I'm going to take you as you are now and I'm never going to develop you ever from this point is not a job I want to do. I want a job where they're going to grow me, they're going to invest in me, they're going to see something in me. And I think that maybe there is something within your integrity of saying, you know, I can do 90% of this and I'm confident and I'm willing to work and I would love you to help me do the other 10%. So I think there is an interesting tension there and an interesting conversation to be had. I don't think it's always gender-based, but you're right that the research would often say that classically women are less willing to go for stuff unless they are 100% confident they can already do it. And guys are more classically willing to gamble, give a little... I don't, I don't think it's due to anything intrinsic in, in, in us as women or something. Maybe it's to do with the, us, the experience we more commonly have of the world and what's asked of us. I don't know. Maybe it's about resilience. There's lots of things we could debate. But, but I would suggest you to play and debate a little bit with your concept of integrity and think about who you could be. I know that the job I'm doing now, I would never in a million years have thought that I could do it ten years ago. I would have laughed you out of here. So the person who saw the potential in me and gave me a job that involved speaking and teaching and stuff, I owe them a huge amount. And what, what, where would I be if I hadn't applied for it because I couldn't do it then? So think about your potential. Think about what you could grow into.
2: Excellent. We'll put up your time. You get a good job. And oh. okay.
1: Hi. What do you do if um, like people at work are um, constantly putting you down and they don't think you're capable, especially if you're disabled and um, they never understand your abilities and kind of they're bullying you.
0: you Mm, Okay yeah lots of tricky stuff in that question so let me do it in two parts if that's okay because I know you're there's a specific context that you're asking from. What, What do you do if you're getting lots of negative messages in and I think the difficulty is if you need to grow, is that sometimes if you get managers in particular who aren't very wise, they think that the way to to grow you is to criticize you a lot and to point out all the things that you do wrong. But everybody knows that kids don't grow like that and neither do adults. We grow by having people who can spot the good stuff and help us to grow and develop. So I think there's something about trying to find some people who can speak good things into you and good mentors and good people who can walk alongside you in life. And in that difficult position, be another opinion, another perspective. So you can, remember when someone throws your ball, you don't have to catch it. Maybe you kick it to someone else and say, what do you think about this? Somebody's saying this about me. So look for some other opinions and some other perspectives. Where there's, where there's a disability, a specific challenge for you, that, that's, even, that's even more difficult because their comprehension may be just they've got loads of catching up to do. And maybe there is some stuff that you're not so good at, you're not so able at, But there'll be millions, loads of other stuff that you bring to that role, to your life, to your friends and everything. So even more so, get someone who can speak into your situation. And I would say in your work context, maybe get some good advice. Because at the end of the day, if somebody's discriminating against you and and if they're saying stuff that's not helpful and if they're criticising you and it comes from a disability, there's some good advice you can get on that because you don't have to just accept that. So find some other good opinions and get some good advice from some people whose opinions you value a bit more, I would say. My daughter is 50 years of age and she puts me down at every single opportunity. She feels that she's never felt loved all of her life and she invites me to go and see her and I go, but it's I'm frightened, I'm really apprehensive before I go. We have a nice time and then the next day then she picks on everything that I've not done
2: right. Um, What can I do about that?
0: yeah I'm so sorry family relationships can be really difficult can't they it can be a real challenge whether you're the parent or, or or the child we've heard it from both sides now and I think again the message is the same you know at the end of the day you have got a family relationship with that person and you love her and you want to speak into her life but there's a limit to how much you want to accept the stuff she's saying to you and sometimes we have to accept that people's context people's perspective is biased they're only getting one view of us And I don't know, maybe there was some stuff in her childhood that she's frustrated with. None of us are perfect parents. But that doesn't mean that it gives her the right to to criticise you and attack you and stuff like that. So again, I would just think about how much of that stuff do you accept? And sometimes a mature, resilient self-confidence is about saying... That, that person is someone who, who I need to appreciate that they have their own perspective on this, and I don't necessarily agree with it, whether it's your mother, whether it's your daughter, whoever it is. Yeah, yeah. You do need to have that contact, but I think you can still put a bit, there's still a bit of an emotional protection that you can put between you and her. And maybe there's something you can do about um, making a point when you've spent time with her. Maybe every day you schedule that the next day you spend it with someone who's a really good friend who really loves you and you know will speak good stuff over you. So you can sort of counteract it because of course you need to keep speaking into her life. She's your daughter. But I, th- I, think, I think that's different to saying just because they're a family member, I'm going to give them the right to, to write stuff all over my self concept Sometimes people's perspectives mean that they get stuff wrong. Maybe some, there is some stuff in what she says and, and what you need to do is find a safe place that you can take some of that to unpack it. Because then that gets you to a place where you can then say, actually, this stuff that she's saying I definitely don't think is fair. I don't think there's anything in that. So maybe it's about exploring and having some headspace where you can think about what she's saying and maybe where that's coming from for her. But ultimately, I would say, you don't have to catch everything that she says to you.
2: Now, as uh, Kate was talking about um, having the confidence to accept the challenge, is there anyone who has has never thought of asking a question cause in a situation like this because they haven't got the confidence? Um, oh, a to practical do so. example.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> There's
2: one at the right at the back.
1: Hello, I'm Kate. Um, I've got a question. How do you help someone that is not confident, and that person you love, how do you speak good stuff to them? Basically, how to make them more confident? That's a fantastic question. So how do
0: you grow confidence in someone else? I love that. And in a way, you've answered it straight away. So I would say that it is your ability to speak good stuff over them because your words can be authoritative too. Maybe you see something about them that they don't see. Maybe you think they must see it because it's so obvious, but maybe they don't. How can you tell them? How can you tell them again and again and again in different ways? Maybe it's just about stuff you say to them. Maybe you can even play some little fun games with them. So parents, um, I, I like the game where you, you take a, a, month of, a month of confidence and what you do is you, um, hide, a, you hide a little poster every single day somewhere where your kid will find it and you've written on it something you love about them. And just have fun hiding them and watching them find them. That's great fun. I like that one. You can do it with spouses as well. Anyone, friends, anyone whose life you want to speak into. Maybe, there's some, maybe you can write them a, a letter to tell them some of the stuff that you love about them. I don't know, what could you do? There's so many ways you could speak good stuff over that person. Maybe you can help them see a perspective on themselves that they would never have seen anywhere else. And it sounds to me like they are amazingly lucky to have someone like you who wants to do that for them. That's a brilliant gift. So just keep doing what you're doing.
2: Uh, we have a question for our Northern Northern Irish con- <laughs> Kate, um if you walk through your ports and or you went to Waterstone's bookshops, there's stacks of books on confidence in all the you know there all are. the various areas of life. Question is, which ones do you use and which ones do you just leave but You know, how do you how you've you've given us a lot of information. So if people were wanting to find out more.
0: Yeah, and do you know what my advice would be? There are so many. There is no one in particular that I say, this is a brilliant book. I I haven't written one on confidence. (laughs) Otherwise, I'd plug it now and say, no, (laughs) definitely buy this one. (laughs) Maybe it's a good thing I haven't written one. Do you know what I'd recommend is join a good local library because, as you say, there's so many, and then you can borrow them all and you can read them. And the, the trick to all this stuff is take the stuff that's helpful... And just discard the stuff that isn't helpful. Because almost every book, every perspective, every approach to something like confidence, there'll be something in it where you're like, oh, that's really interesting. Actually, I find that really helpful. But there'll be some other stuff where you'll just think, yeah, no, that's not really for me. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Don't be too analytic about it. Read loads of books. Borrow them from your friends. Get them from the library. And take the stuff that's good and don't worry too much about the other bits enjoy looking at all the different perspectives and teaching that you can find because there is loads of it out there
2: excellent Uh, i think this this might be the last question
1: hi kate Um, it's not so much a question but it's just something that threw me a little bit and i just thought i'd share it for when we were talking about um having a coffee with your daughter or um um, relationships with teenagers Um, I've got three fantastic sister-in-laws with um, an abundance of age range of children and sexes. So I've listened to a lot of what they've said um, and they come out with little nuggets of information. And one of those was to keep the channels of communication open for when your daughter or son wants to speak to you. So I've tried to do that. Not always easy when you're flying around the kitchen and trying to get things sorted out, but I've tried. Um, But one day I came home and... um, my daughter's got a good relationship with her dad and with me, so he's equal when it comes to chatting too. And she was talking to him and she was in tears. And what she came out with just really surprised me, which was she wanted to spend more time with me. And because she's quite in, on the outside, she's quite independent, and she's on the outside quite confident, I've been letting her be confident and I've been letting her be independent And I didn't know whether I felt really good and important that I had that um, need from her or whether I felt really bad that I hadn't been giving her that need. But it was just interesting that that was how she felt and she actually wanted that relationship. And we forget that sometimes with our
0: teenagers. Yeah. Because a lot of the messages that come from them seem to be about wanting you to not be there, certainly not embarrass them and not be seen with them in public. And so much of their life is about separating from you and being independent. But actually, teenage, teenagehood is about the tension between being one minute an adult and one minute still that, that little nine-year-old. And sometimes still what they want and need is just to be with you and spend time with you. And it's just about negotiating and working out when and how you do that and trying to find some stuff that they'll enjoy doing with you because that's quite a challenge. and uh, and trying to find those special moments but like you say also just taking advantage of those little moments and they're not always the best it'll be when you're totally crazily busy and you've got 101 things to do that they'll come in and they'll just sit down at the kitchen table and say mom and you think oh now really are we going to have this conversation now but the the and the temptation is so huge to say but i can't do this now But just to stop, and it might just be five minutes, sit down, put down what you're doing, look at them and have that conversation because in a few years they might be gone, they might have left home, they might have lost interest in you, you might have a lot less influence. So yeah, grab the opportunities when you get them. That's that's good advice for us all, I think.